0: The Full Exposure Podcast is brought to you by Dr. Peter Hahn and University of Michigan Health West in appreciation of the creative and artistic visionaries who enrich our lives through cultural connections. Hey, 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 everybody. Happy New Year again. Gosh, it's uh, uh, towards the end of January, maybe, almost mid-January. Who knows? Who can keep up? All I know is most of my resolutions I've broken already. So, uh, you know, it's never too early for the wheels to come off our determination. But uh, I hope yours is going well. And um, today I'm very excited because we have a fantastic guest, Dr. Randall Jelks, who uh, coincidentally is my former neighbor. Uh, I lived uh, many years on the same block, just so uh, you lived around the corner in this beautiful white house. And uh, they were our neighbors. And Dr. Jelks uh, and his wife moved away um, a few years ago, and we miss him. But uh, this opportunity to sit down with him on the podcast comes on two fortuitous occasions. One is he uh, is the author of a new book called Letters to Martin, Meditations on Democracy in Black America, And uh, today, as in Monday, is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So I've held this episode until we could uh, honor Dr. King and Dr. Jelks um, to uh, put it out to this episode today, which is just a a, a beautiful little uh, symmetry that's happened. And um, Dr. Jelks uh, is a professor, a documentary producer, an author, he uh, is currently teaches American Studies, African American Studies, at the University of Kansas. And how does he do that from Grand Rapids? Well, that's his charm. That's his secret. He's everywhere, Dr. Jelks. As is the Jelks family. If you circle back and go back a few episodes, uh, many episodes actually, I talked to his son doctor, or no, he's not a doctor, but Jonathan Jelks, his son, who's a serial entrepreneur and making huge waves uh, downtown Grand Rapids with several of his companies and efforts. And uh, the Jelks family continues to inspire and push the envelope here in Grand Rapids towards broader thinking. And And I hope that this uh, conversation I have with Dr. Jelks um, illuminates some of your thinking in some ways. And um, I just love this family. I love uh, how much of an impact, how driven they are around Grand Rapids. And this book is no exception. Um, letters to Martin contains 12 meditations on contemporary political struggles for our oxygen deprived society. Evoking Martin Luther King Jr.'s letters, Letter to Birmingham Jail. These meditations written in the form of Letters to King speak specifically to the many public issues we presently confront in the United States. It's a, you know, it's a heavy book, a lot of stuff uh, about our society, a raw look at it. But uh, Dr. Jelks has uh, positioned this book in a way that uh, everyone can enjoy and learn from. And uh, I just love this conversation. And uh, he's, he's an a insightful, learned, amazing person, and somebody I'm proud to say is my friend. So, without further ado, let's explore the bigger picture with author of Letters to Martin, Meditations on Democracy in Black America. Go to the show notes, people. You can find a link to buy it. Uh, let's explore the bigger picture with Dr. Randall Jelts. Yeah, you
1: know, Nashville's a pretty, um, their best uh, younger sister lives in Nashville. It's a nice time.
0: Yeah, I've, I I've have spent have a little to, bit of time there. Yeah, but I've it's, got to uh, go down
1: there for uh, my niece's wedding in, in July. Yeah, so, yeah great. Know.
0: Well, we're already rolling. Yeah, yeah. So uh, welcome, Dr. Thank, Randall Jelks, my thank old you. neighbor. Thank you. Uh, you used to live around the corner yeah. from each other uh, on the same block, just yeah.
1: boop, right there. Right, yards a oh. butt.
0: Yeah, and, um, but I really am... Uh, Excited to have you uh, on the podcast. Talk to you about a whole kind a host of things. Yeah. But for the for for us that may not know you that well in terms of your academic background and kind of where you've evolved. If there's like an elevator pitch about okay, I've been in academia and your relationship with um, down in Kansas and all that right, stuff. Right. So, what's the
1: the short? I don't want so to be short, but I, I, yeah. I always like to tell people. Uh, I'm from New Orleans, Yeah, and uh, that was the formative place of my life, I lived there to I uh, entered high school, and then we moved to Chicago, but New Orleans shapes me. Yeah. So the sense of a culture, the sense of uh, uh, the dynamics of, of interacting with people, I'm, I'm a native of New Orleans, that's always gonna be My home. I have no West Michigan whatsoever in me. (laughs) Um, I um, came um, to Michigan uh, via a relationship, you know, you you meet a girl and so forth. And uh, I came to uh, the the university, I transferred to the University of Michigan. Uh, I was at the University of Illinois and went to and finished up at Michigan as an undergraduate. nice. Um, and um, uh, my journey is interesting. I, I went to seminary before I went to do a PhD. Hmm. I went to a place called McCormick Theological Seminary in the late 70s, early 80s. Would kind and of like
0: uh, help us, uh, the West Michiganders. Like what sort of well, denomination Cormac is uh, we'll part have.
1: of the Presbyterian Church USA. Okay, um, so downtown church is Westminster. Mm-hmm. Um, would be a part uh, part of that, and I came uh, here um, and attempted, as always, uh, being rather entrepreneurial uh, to uh, begin a congregation uh, for the Presbyterian Church. Uh, they had been. Pulling out of the core city uh, and moving to the suburbs, as many sure. churches had done, and uh, so I came out to uh, to do reach out to the core core city community. I was freshly out of seminary; I was 27 years old. Full of myself. <laughs> uh, some people say I'm still full of myself, uh, but you know that was how I, I came to Grand Rapids in 1983. So I've been around a long yeah. time. That's so. enough to yeah. Is have that half a,
0: your life at this point? Oh yeah, yeah. I had a, a real <laughs>
1: view on the city. Yeah. Um. In um. Uh. It gave me a hands-on view of the city. I mean, I. Worked in the community and worked with lots of different groups of people and um, got to know um, folks who were working on Wealthy Street, began to work with them in terms of uh, trying to get banks to reinvest in the community. Uh, I often tell my students, <clears throat> ghettos uh, aren't always people's faults. Uh, they're made, and they're made by institutional investments and and, uh, of course Grand Rapids represents like the other part of the country, the uh, the divestment in the core cities. So Mm, I I met people who had like in the the old days like $500 in the bank and they needed like $1,500 to get their roof fixed, and the banks wouldn't give them because they were what's called redlined. Sure. They were redlined and they couldn't get money in their bank. So I I began uh, sort of uh, working thinking about issues of health care, uh, the disparities of health care. Uh, uh, the local, the little congregation we started ran a health fair throughout the city uh, in uh, 80, 1987, in the summer of 87, trying to get people access to dental care, other kinds of care. Sure. So when I, I came here with eyes on the, the community, I was always going to go back to graduate school Mm-hmm. Um, I was just burned out because I had gone to an undergraduate, and I spent another four years as a theological student. So I was burned out of school, Great. and I wanted to do some underground action, and so I came uh, here, and then I went to finally do a PhD uh, at Michigan State uh, in history, and uh, and began my academic career teaching at Calvin College. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, so wow. I, I taught at Calvin College from 1992 to roughly the end of 2007.
0: No kidding. Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't realize
0: you were at Calvin.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, Mike Van Denen, who our old oh, neighbor, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, he was. Uh, he, I, I was always getting him in trouble. <laughs> well, good. He
0: needed it. Uh, the uh, no, uh, <laughs> a, a super nice guy. I miss him in the neighborhood. As yeah. I, I miss uh, miss you guys as well. But the. Um, he, uh, well, so the last like the, the last 10 or so years you've been teaching in, 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 yeah, down in since, Kansas. Uh, and last... No, a little longer than that. 2008, I began in Kansas. Okay. And what's your main
1: role and sort of emphasis there with your yeah, uh, I'm, position? I'm a professor uh, in two departments. I'm professor of American Studies and African and African American Studies at the University of Kansas. And I have what they call courtesy appointments in the history department and religious studies, uh, at, at, at KU. So primarily I'm teaching undergraduates, giving lecture courses, uh, and I have graduate students, uh, people who are doing masters and PhDs. So I'm sure everybody asks you about
0: logistically, like how, how does that sort of divide your time during an academic year? How well, much are I you- have a
1: small apartment in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, uh, Uh, and I I used that apartment. And then in the summertime, um, I still like a real lake, and I like being in Michigan in the summertime.
0: Yeah. Well, and your wife had, you know, important jobs around Grand Rapids as well. So it was, uh, you know, your... Yeah, and our
1: kids, when I took the job at Kansas, were now I graduated uh, from uh, high school. So they were, you know, they were... Well, they were, the yeah,
0: way. they're on their way. Yeah. They weren't little kids uh, no. that needed help all the time. Um, well, I'd like to uh, just pivot. I have an odd question, maybe, about how being a pastor uh, aligns kind of with your thoughts about um, civil rights and um, equity and access. And, and what, how did that prepare you in the ministry to how is it related or an extension? Of maybe how you see your last uh, ten or fifteen years of
1: your career now as an author and and uh, yeah. you know, higher ed uh well they they always went together I mean one study is a part of the the life of any good clergy person uh, I think you you study all the the, the time i uh, I was uh studying because um um, the The pastoral work that I did was not traditional in this in any any stretch of the imagination uh, i wasn 't coming to an established congregation, mm-hmm. and so I had to go out and get out in the streets and know a variety of people and I had met a variety of people and uh, who didn 't go to church and so I you know had to be able to hold conversations with them about what their viewpoints are you know and the, In a place like Grand Rapids, where there was church on every corner, um, it it felt like a very repressive place to many people. So I wound up uh, engaging in conversations with people who didn't think uh, um, having a church community was that great and that it was uh, unhelpful and unhealthy to the community. Some people who had grown up in the Christian reform church who had abandoned it, some people who felt like... uh, their traditional black congregations were too conservative. Uh, I met a lot of different people, mm-hmm. um, and I was a uh, even, you know, at college and and seminary, I'm, I'm was a kind of nerdy guy. And I'm reading and thinking about problems of, of philosophy and problems of uh, of of God, and and so. So I was just engaging people in conversation, mm-hmm. uh, inviting them to, at that time, to to build community, uh, to build um, uh, uh, what does it mean to live in community, whether we're black or white or yellow or whatever, or gay, straight, whatever. What does that mean to build community? So I was always thinking about those concerns and those questions, even as a young uh, clergy, um uh and as a seminarian you know the first uh i took two jobs the first year of seminary I worked for uh, an outfit called uh the Institute on the Church and urban industrial society and they did they did reports on churches all over the world uh um under from, you know under repressive governments under uh uh, uh, under uh, siege uh, under, uh, or as religious minorities and people were doing all kinds of different things to get, get ministry at, uh, out there. The second job I took was working at uh, a formerly sort of giant church, at First Presbyterian Church of Chicago in Woodlawn. Um, and what attracted me to work there was that the church was building a greenhouse in uh, 1981 building a greenhouse with the idea of of figuring out a way to employ people in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. The neighborhood where the church once was was um, rapidly declining and people needed jobs so the church built a greenhouse and the greenhouse was to help employ people, sell flowers, grow other kinds of food groups over the wintertime. And it was a solar greenhouse. It was one of these initial solar greenhouses, mm-hmm. and those were kind of projects that I was yeah. interested in. And you're going to ask people, quote unquote, to save their lives. Well, they need a really up out- right. <laughs> to yeah. save their lives. Right. You know? so, so, so,
0: well, and I, greenhouses uh, reminds me of Detroit. I was doing before Detroit really started to turn. I was doing a portrait project down there over a series of uh, a couple of three years. I was working on a portrait project and. Um, and a lot of people were learning how to grow. There wasn't a lot of jobs and food and economy, but they were right. learning how to grow food. Correct. They, everyone has a back. That's one thing about the Midwest. You mm. usually have a side lot. Right. A backyard. Right. little patch of dirt. You can grow food. And if you're uh, food insecure, yeah, learning how to grow food, I mean, that's not ideal right. in today's society, but it just brought me back to that.
1: Well, yeah. Flashback and this of, like, was 1981. Yeah. Um, a, I, um participated... Uh, and I, and I was lucky. I mean, I was very fortunate, you know. Uh, so, for example, uh, in 1980, I went, to, I went to behind the Iron Curtain, as it used to say. Yes. I went to Romania. Did and you smuggle Bibles in? Uh, no, I was oh, not interested in smuggling Bibles. Okay. But I went to Romania, where the, under Ceausescu, the, the church, remained open. Uh, and uh, my professor took us, about 10 of us. 12 of us to all through Romania uh, to understand the Orthodox Church, their their own kind of theology, their uh, uh, history, but also what the church looked like uh, in this communist setting. And then we went to um, Hungary and so I had gotten this global exposure. Next year the same professor, um, a guy named Bruce Rigdon uh, it, you know, Pitched to me, you want to go to the Middle East and do the same thing. And so I went all, we went with Bruce, we went all the way up uh, to uh, Damascus uh, in back roads to Lebanon and wow. and, and getting getting a, a global picture. So when I came to Grand Rapids at 27 years old, um, yeah, I was pretty full of myself. I'd been around the <laughs> world. And, and I thought, oh, th- this is, you know, I worked in Chicago uh this will this will be easier and what I found is um the resources were a lot less uh you know and and the allies were a lot less, and people were um basically conformists um and and no disrespect to any of my friends um but they didn't have to think about um the other side of the track, so to speak right and um you know, that and that's all right if you know wherever you're born is where you're born. Back to New Orleans. If you are any southern city in the country in the nineteen sixties, uh born in the late fifties, you're gonna experience the civil rights movement before your eyes. Yeah. So I would always ask um my mom and my other relatives, um about what they thought about this shift going on and this very struggle going on uh, in, in front of us. Mm-hmm. So that shaped me uh, all the time. So I was intellectually curious kid. That shaped me. And I begin to say, you know, most people around the world have a lot in common. Right. Um, they, if they can get over um, the kind of ethnic definitions totally of themselves, they find out they, um, they're out of money. They're broke. Yeah. They're marginal <laughs> to the well. There is the a thing. baseline of humanity, yeah, right? Yeah, that's like, correct. Oh,
0: we're humans, and right. then uh, these other sort of uh, filters we put through that is just uh, our 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 kind of manufactured right. bullshit. Right, and, and, and I want to you
1: know want people to see that they are um, human. Yeah. Um. I'm wondering
0: coming up in the civil rights era, or at least observing a lot of it as if while well, you were probably very small when it was starting, but like even the momentum through the sixties and seventies right. I mean even through to today, I mean we'll talk about your book a little bit later, but um you know the the differences and frustrations that you've had, I think what I'm really interested in knowing because of your perspective about Grand Rapids coming from the South, how much time you've been thinking about um, civil rights and, and equity and, and inclusion. I'm beginning to tire for some reason of that term. It's more yeah. about equity to me yeah. than like making sure we include people. Right. I hate that sort of like, uh, you know, that uh, anyway. But it's a and i is a good way to explain, sure. you know, for most people to go, oh, okay, yeah, we need to make sure we have... a wider representation however but i'm wondering like coming from the south and descending into west michigan and spending time here especially in communities that may have been underserved already that's where you found momentum around a membership and growing your church your small church and the south um i'm interested in what you, how you characterize west michigan because it's very hard for us to have that outside perspective Sure. We just are who we are to some extent
1: in terms of like being kind of blinders on you, just going through your life. You know, I didn't grow up in any city. I mean, and that's the interesting thing. I I grew up in a world-class city. I mean, that's by any stretch of the imagination. People all over the world know New Orleans, right? They don't know Grand Rapids. Sure. The other thing is that I lived in a diverse community. Um, You know, one of the things about a city like New Orleans then, before the kind of suburban exodus, uh, is that people lived in proximity one another. Mm-hmm. So I lived around the corner from a Jewish synagogue. My, as it was then referred to, the pharmacist, the druggist, was uh, Jewish. We had Italians and Irish, all in a community. People were actually knew each other and knew families, unlike. Um, the greater Midwest, when we moved to Chicago, um, people actually segmented. I mean, there are these ethnic enclaves. Boom, you could drive down Garfield Boulevard of Chicago and you could open the window and you could literally smell different foods. Whereas in New Orleans, people were going to have commonality about food. Everybody became Catholic on Friday when (laughs) I was a kid. It's so fish. Right, uh, synagogue included. Right? Right, 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 Everybody had a fish fry, and there was a debate about who's gonna, who had the best, who had the best uh, <laughs> fish, fish dinner. Right, yeah, <laughs> uh, because um, and so I always say this when I came to Calvin College, I said, Oh, you know, you, you you've been to a bar mitzvah with your friends, haven't you? <laughs> These kids looked at me like right. oh my god, where's this dude come from? Yeah. First he's black and then sure. he's asking me, Well, you've been to Mass with your friends, haven't sure. you? You know, uh, 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 even if you're not in that tradition, those are your neighbors. Yeah. So a first event like your first communion at the local Catholic parish, yeah, you go with your friends right. to to that was a big celebration. So yeah. Catholic and other other kinds of things. And yeah. And I, I grew up, uh, kind of strangely, I grew up a black Lutheran and I thought all Lutherans were black. Because <laughs> there were five all-black Lutheran churches in New Orleans. Okay. And, I, and my mother, you know, uh, uh, in about 7th grade, 6th, 7th grade, decided that she wanted to join this, this small Lutheran congregation. So that was even an oddity because people here... Um, didn't understand the diversity within black communities, right? Right. So there were families in New Orleans who were upper middle class physicians, doctors, lawyers. I wasn't, I was up from working class, but I knew people who were doctors, lawyers, you know, dentists um, growing up, you know, Mm -hmm. and they, they served our communities. When I came here, then moving to Chicago, you have a million black people then at that time, well, there are class differentiations all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Grand Rapids, black people were considered s- simply a monolith, um, and very, very, very few uh, saw the difference. And um, you know, and that was my first book. I wrote a book yeah. about Grand Rapids, you yeah. know, about because I, I had to understand for my try to get, bring some understanding some knowledge to understanding the kind of formation of a community.
0: Yeah. And your takeaway then about Grand Rapids just from a, that racial standpoint, I mean, we're still, I mean, we had your son on last year, the year before on the podcast. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. But the, uh, you know, just, we talked a bit about the intents and uh, it's in the media too as well. That's just the intense sort of, a, we're the most, uh, one of the most segregated still cities, economically and racially. But what sort of like underpinnings or mapping or tendencies or framework or architecture did you see back
1: then when you wrote that book that uh, that still exists? Well, and you, know, you I mean, of with course, today? I, I don't think Grand Rapids. You know that that I would disagree with Forbes. Grand Rapids reflects the region it's in. Grand Rapids, no, in that regard, no different than Milwaukee, uh, Chicago, Detroit. The the ethnic segmentation and um, the kind of and these uh, was this was in the interest of large um, um, owners of the furniture industry to segment people. Right, I'm going to hire this particular ethnic group. So um, and and then I'll hire their. Do nepotism, I'll hire their family. They mm-hmm. won't form a union on me. I sure. mean, um, and the Polish will live on the west side and right. the modest right. housing in the right. southeast side, of the black right. families will right. live there. And, and so the segmentation really yeah. worked in terms of uh, larger industry. Yeah. Uh, uh, Where you needed they, laborers. But That's correct. You and know. Ford, Mr. Ford, uh, Henry Ford, the, the founder, I mean, he used black labor. It's like, oh, if you form a union, uh, I'm going to get black labor to come from the South and take your job. Sure. And so it just creates, one, it's a setup to create people having tensions already, right? Because now you're viewed as threatening my job and my livelihood, and it's hard enough as it is. Yeah. that's a that's a regional phenomenon. Grand Rapids, yeah. South Bend.
0: Fair um, to say to extend that to like a Rust Belt sort of industrialization, industrial, industrial yeah, complex type right. yeah, thing. You yeah. go
1: anywhere along the Great Lakes, yeah. and I mean, um, you're talking Cleveland and Gary all the way up and, to yeah. Minnesota. I yeah, mean, sure. th- th- and that's at the meeting of the plains. I mean, you really you're talking you know, about the ways you know, uh, ethnic, and then particularly ethnic groups. Uh, have enough strength uh to become the police officers, the fire chiefs you know yeah. chicago it was the irish uh and of course you know you you had large czech immigration you you 've got all kinds of people moving in, and everybody's trying to carve out a niche yeah
0: um, when uh uh, this is a odd pivot, not really extended, but like, what do you enjoy the most about writing, and oh. um, you know, sort of cultivating? I'm just curious your process in terms of like when you ruminate. Let's let's tee up your book. We'll come back to like what it actually is, but in this instance, it's Letters to Martin is the name yeah. of the title.
1: Yeah, and, and the subtitle tell- is Meditations on Democracy in Black America.
0: Which I found fascinating. I don't know the, but it's not won't be out till till the fall. But the uh, and but I'll post links uh, for, so people know how and where to get it on your episode page. But the, um, you know, you're communicating and writing, as far as I understand, and correct me. Uh, you're writing to Dr. Martin Luther King, Right. writing letters from you, yeah. Dr. Jelks, right. to Dr. Martin Luther King, right. kind of informing him of what's happening in today's society. So right. where did that, let's just boil that down just as a curiosity about being an author. Like where did that idea come from? And, uh, and then how did you sort of evolve the framework and the ideas of these
1: letters? Well, I, the, 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 this book came out of, I was asked to speak at Elmhurst College, now Elmhurst University, in um, their Martin Luther King Day and it was shortly after Donald Trump was elected. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out ways to say to young people um, why they should be, uh, have hope and why they should build, uh, again, the theme of uh, inclusive community. And so I gave this, this, uh, this talk to them. And I said, well, you know, this is interesting. I could use this as a potential Uh, Book book uh, process. (laughs) So it came out of being invited to Elmhurst uh, 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 and to give a talk uh, just um, a couple of days before Trump uh, President Trump was um, um, sworn into office. Okay. And lots of kids were angst. Um, They had a lot of angst. A lot of immigrant kids. Lots of uh, uh, young, uh, uh, kids all over the place who are clearly feeling anxiety about it, and yeah. I was like you know okay there there are other there have been other times before, and there will be times again, and how might we talk you know about this to uh,
0: yeah, and I think there was an effort early on, even Dave Chappelle hosted uh, Saturday, Saturday Night Live and he said, you know, give him a chance.
1: Well, yeah, and I, then, I uh, wasn't interested in giving <laughs> Trump a chance. <tense. laughs> I mean, you know, unfortunately for me, uh, Donald Trump, I knew a lot about Trump, um, and, uh, not his persona uh, on The Apprentice, but what happened in New York in 1989 uh, with the Central Park Five. yeah, I yeah. go to New York pretty frequently and got friends. My sister, I uh, live in, in the New York metropolitan area. Um, I wasn't none too happy because um, it was... Uh, well, that um, was ugly. That was terrible. Well, yeah. It, again, I grew up in the South. I'm well versed in people who promote other people to, to use extra, what, extrajudicial violence mm-hmm. um, on folks and I wasn't very happy and I didn't think that was um, uh, very, uh, a very good thing and he used the Bertha thing on uh, Mr. Obama in mm-hmm. his presidency and I was like I'm, I'm, not, I'm not down with this guy this guy yeah. uh, and I'm not down with a guy who doesn't pay his workers Right. Right. so yeah. I'm still for the working person so in Atlantic City he ripped off most of the average artisan I mean, it, in Grand Rapids, you know, you want to pay your guy who paints your house. Me, right. <laughs> that's yeah. basic respect. Right, right, right. And so I don't, I'm not down with that. And so I was like, okay, well, but I wasn't going there to give them that talk. I was trying to give them, Hey, you mm-hmm. democracies require struggle yeah. and, and you can't, you can't avoid that struggle. And what is the best way to go into that struggle? And I thought, okay, that's an aspect of Dr. King's life that that they should know Mm -hmm. that you have to be willing to struggle to create the kind of community you want to live in. And to wade into that adversity and you're almost preparing them, I'm
0: (laughs) I'm projecting in, but like giving them hope, but that it requires Struggle that you know times you know we're of a going into a certain time. That's right. Of struggle of a particular kind because of you can read the tea leaves, right? Right. Especially I think as a minority and 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 I don't think it necessarily matters in his case uh, uh, who he will uh, take advantage of uh, if it you know I think he's an equal opportunity well, yeah. uh, in terms of uh, right. ripping people off uh, or their dreams or their the truth or whatever it might be. So anyway, uh, but that was the kind of crux of it. The yeah. Did, in, in terms of Dr. King right. using that as and, an and example. I thought,
1: I thought it, uh, by, I, in the title Meditations, I thought it, you have to give some reflection. Uh, we have an in instantaneous society. People make instantaneous responses on Twitter. They make Instantaneous responses to everything nowadays, you know, without sort of taking a step back from and let's let's try to figure this out. Let's breathe in, breathe out, so to speak. What is actually going on? Um, and so, and what I thought the best of Dr. King was to create, a, a, to attempt to create a more inclusive democracy. that that it doesn't just belong to one people. If we're going to have this form of government, then it has to belong to all of us. And yes, it's messy. And no, we don't like people shouting at one another. But that's what democracy is. It's like getting on the, uh, in the old days, getting on the L train downtown Chicago at 5 o'clock. You gotta rub against everybody. Sure. And some people who got bad body odor, some people who got great perfume. Sure. And maybe you squeeze in between them. That's democracy.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think something that we've lost in the climate, I think it, it's been this way for a while, not to not to just point to the, mm-hmm. the last president, but like these uh, the way that we're so binary in Democrat and Republican parties, and how there is no House floor, there's no debate about bills or amendments to bills. It's You're basically told by uh, Pelosi or somebody else how you're going to vote on a bill, and if you don't, uh, good luck getting any legislation you you want to the floor like it's we've lost that conversation is my point well, I, I on don't, the floor
1: if you know the history of the congress i don't think there's ever been that conversation no uh-huh. <laughs> that's well, how the that's the rules of the house and the senate and if you know how to master those rules uh... <laughs> you can avoid all the conversation yeah there, yeah so. i mean like hmm. you know um you know Mitch McConnell. Uh, so, for example, is doing his thing of LBJ in the in the late '50s, trying to be the master of the Senate, right? I mean, that's uh, so. I, I think the, the most people are naive to politics, the, how the actual workings of politics go, and that's because we don't even teach civics anymore. Yeah. I mean, you know, seventh grade, I hated it, um, but but understanding the workings of even your local government um, if this is the the problem, like um the mayor and the city former charter has to have four votes to get anything done, so how are you going to do it yeah how are you going to whip those people together now imagine uh, the speaker with four hundred and seventy one people to mm-hmm. whip together instead of the you know the four majority right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah exactly. uh, or you know um now. Um, you know, and th- over the last fifty years, w- what we've lost is that we had a consensus. The country was really run up until the, about the '80s uh, into the '90s by people who all experienced World War II, mostly males, mm-hmm. and they they then had a commonality, like at the University of Kansas. Uh, there's a, the Dole Institute. Bob and, Dole. Yeah, Ra- Bob Dole ran mm-hmm. vice president with Gerald Ford. Dole and I wouldn't see eye to eye on politics, but we have um, the, the former senator great respect, right for the former senator. Um, he and um, another former senator, D- Daniel Hanoi, both were wounded veterans in World War. II. They are on different yeah, sides. He of the was part. from Hawaii. Hawaii, Hawaii yeah, right? Yeah. That's right. And but they, you know, they they could argue about policy. Sure. Gerald Ford's World War II. They could argue their differences. The shift of the, for me, the 1964 campaign, looking at this historically, because I was uh, only um, eight eight years old, but the 1964 campaign with Barry Goldwater with this trying to stem the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Um, The, you know, uh, uh, things kept progressively, people don't ever look at this. The 1954, Brown versus Board of Education shook up the country, particularly the South. Um, and Brown took place in Kansas. It was accumulation of cases, a combination of cases. And so yeah, people just got, uh, okay, well next thing they'll tell you whose children they want to go to school with. And, 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 and the issue at stake was that I always tell my students this. My parents didn't necessarily want me to go to school with white kids. They thought the school I went to was better as it is. They just wanted equal funding. So if you're going to fund East Grand Rapids, say, for example, Mm -hmm. they'd like, okay, well, fund us. And that was the the crux of And if you're not going to fund, then we have to find other ways of cooperating. But if you ask my parents' generation, they would have said, oh, you know, we're perfectly fine. We want neighborhood schools too, yeah. but you're not funding all schools at a rate um, that uh, it, it is proper.
0: Yeah. It almost seems like you should create the equality around the funding first, then decide whether there should be this uh, you know, um, integration of the schools or this forced busing to create this Sort right. of a, a, well, well these, were, of
1: these, were, these were ideas that people had. And of course um, this seemed to be a threat to, to, to everyone and it was used politically. Yeah, sure. I mean, Richard Nixon used it in his campaign. Um, it, so it was used, it used politically to create a majority. And that's, that's real politics. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, people try to create majorities. Um, they try to spin a narrative you don 't think about the other issues that are affecting you. you think only about one issue mm-hmm. uh, you think about abortion, you think about this it's not that these are aren't major moral or uh issues of concern it's only I want to distract you to think about this this yeah, and don't think about these other things and well, I, yeah. I i think i think my I, 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 my my point being is that uh, what I'm hoping to do, even with the, the, this book, is to give reflection, yeah. um, to uh, think about issues of labor. And I really want to, to uh, um, uh, think that people uh, should um, try, in my own way, to humanize Dr. King, right? That the kind of letters is a this is a real human being flawed like we all are in uh, struggling to get a hold of uh, democracy and also you know um, um, where people let down um, let down that e- effort mm-hmm. um, and that's the, the real important thing that. We don't let down on that effort. That it's always uh, a struggle. There's a group called Sweet Honey in the Rock, and they uh, have this song. uh, uh, It's called Ella Song. By it's named after famous civil rights organizer Ella Baker, and it says, "We who believe in freedom cannot rest," Uh, and because. We always have to be engaged, not always day to day. We got to take a vacation. We're human. We got to put our feet up in the sand and and all that. But we can't just think that life is like Lever to Beaver or life is like um, uh, some other sitcom. Where mm-hmm. everything is resolved in twenty minutes. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At the end of it, oh man, <laughs> it's like oh, it's resolved. <laughs> and anybody knows living in a family, right? Oh right. man. Yeah. Oh, you know, you yeah. know, you know, we we're hashing that discussion over and over again. <laughs> Good.
0: I want to in the book. So then, what is a particular letter that we could talk about just to give us a sense of you know um, that particular subject that you're writing about, sort of the. Yeah, you know, of like when, a I, t-
1: when I opened the book up, uh, I thought about a photograph I saw of Dr. King when I was a uh, youngster in my uncle's library uh, in Chicago. King rarely wanted to be seen smoking a cigarette. Hmm. It's uh, it's maybe four in the morning, five in the morning in, in Birmingham. His lieutenant who went on to be UN ambassador and mayor of Atlanta, Andrew Young. It's just the two of them. And he's slumped over, and he's got the cigarette in his hand, and they're just talking, and he's bone. This man's bone tired. It's one of the few pictures you'll find with him with a cigarette, because the public person... Even though everybody smoked in those days. Right, that's that right. Really but really he hard was hard a, he's a clergy, so yeah. he didn't want people to see him, you know, and he's just slumped like that. And in my introduction, I write, you know, it was then I realized. He's like the guys that I grew up in my new neighborhood in New Orleans. I mean, they come home working they, in those days, in the 60s, the docks. And I would see these men, you know, have a beer and they're just bone tired. And he's leaning over just like those men. Yep. And I, I realized, oh, this, this was labor. Yeah. This was this is work. He's, he's no different than, than those working class men that I saw. Who you know, um, trying to preserve enough energy to give to the kids. Yeah, you know they're just physically worn out. And sure. Forth. And so I, I really begin with that 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 photograph because yeah. it was like oh yeah, you're, you're like you're like the guys in you know in, the, in my neighborhood, yeah. and yeah you had a suit and tie on, but you, the body posture was like any hard working person some days. You just go home and you're just like, yeah, uh, kids. Just give me a few minutes. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. I need to
0: get my slippers. <laughs> right, right. to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The uh, well, I, I'm, I'm selfishly, I'm I'm uh, thrilled. It's a photograph. That's a springboard. Just mm-hmm. being a, a the, but the power of arresting that moment. I mean, how we those moments are those visuals are seared in our brains, and the fact that that's a a lifting point in this particular, or a starting point for this letter yeah. um, And then what does that letter uh, sort of say to him? And well,
1: well, what I'm with what him saying is like, "Oh, we're connected, yeah. And, um, and then how we're connected. And then, you know, I, you know I went to talk to these kids, and I, I was <laughs> like, "What am I going to say to them?" Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure he somebody who lived that intensive a life. Is saying that over and over again. What am I going to say to these people?
0: Well, and they were looking to him, especially
1: right. for that momentum
0: right. that to keep the flame right. ignited right. and to give direction.
1: Right. And, 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 and we forget how tiring that is. Though.
0: Well, and just getting in those days, getting around in the 50s, and, and not only would they march, but they had to go on these buses, <laughs> yeah. and they had, you know, it was no. Uh, it was no easy task to right. get through the, the South he, in the summertime on a and, civil rights stuff well, like that. That's yeah. And, of
1: course, all of the, the we forget the, the eulogies he performed of people who were killed in the work of doing civil rights. Yeah. So he was exhausted. I mean, he's physically emotional, emotionally exhausted a lot of times. And I think that I wanted to bring that uh, to, to, to light not in um, ways, but that democracy requires us to struggle. That we do have to sit up in the middle of the night with our city council people and hash out stuff so that we get it. We get it. We get it. It right. Mm-hmm. It's easier not to hash out stuff. It's more expedient. It's more. It's efficient not to hash out stuff. Well, when because there's
0: also from a lot of reasons. Just one, it's easier to keep going in that direction right. because you're already headed that way, right. and then you don't have to unravel. And you don't have to day, give account, right? Day. Yeah, right. True. You just don't have to give account. Well, and I think the country, in some respects, you know, we have um, a lot of this uh, accountability to to talk about this. Um, this is exposed and open. I mean, it's made people more. Um, they're not in the shadows as much anymore. In some ways, it's flushed them out so you can identify some, some certain movements more easily. But, um, you know, it's... Uh, but I, I think my takeaway is, is be, you know, I'm not nearly as weary in, these, in this front as someone who uh, lives in the community and has struggled from wherever, but, like, just... <clears throat> there's so much work to be done that it is discouraging and even from the side who the people uh who are fighting for the change that could be most positively impacted by some pro- progress uh, it's easier to to not fight sometimes you know sure. and that's sure. that's uh that's i can see that palpably sometimes in city leaders and city, you know entrepreneurs who are struggling everybody's struggling uh, but particularly in those areas.
1: Yeah, I mean, and everybody gets pulled on 15, 20 different, 100 different ways. I, I realize that. I mean, I think that, you know, um, being leaders in the community, you're, you've got interests all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what only thing one, has, one would wish is that there was more honesty that, we're serving this interest as opposed to the uh, these other interests. At least that would be where the debate the, the should go. Um, you know, um, th- so that, that's that's the that's the that's what's at stake. Yeah. You know. Um, also, you know, it's a way. I'm a historian, so you know, I've written. And this this will be my fourth book, but there are different ways I want to tell history, uh, not always um, my original book about Grand Rapids was straight ahead history. How does it fit into the urban landscape and the other historians uh, writing around me? The second one was a biography of Martin King's mentor. I wanted to understand, because I'm a teacher, he's a teacher, um, I wanted to understand what, what that teaching uh, look like uh, what that running an institution of higher uh, education looked like in, in in the black community. And the third book I wanted to say, you know, uh, uh, African Americans debate faith issues all the time, and I wanted to look at uh, those questions of faith. And so the the third book is called Faith and Struggle in the Lives of Four African Americans. Um, Ethel Waters. Who was a great singer in the twenties and the thirties, forties? film, Second woman to be nominated for an Academy, a black woman to be a nominee for Academy Award. Um, um, sold millions of records. First one to record "Stormy Weather." Um, uh, wanted to look at her uh, later in her life as an elderly woman singing with Billy Graham. So I wanted to look at mm-hmm. look at her. I wanted to look at jazz pianists. Mary Lou Williams, who converted to Catholicism. And then I wanted to look at two men, and I chose Muhammad Ali because he he (laughs) graces the cover of the book. Um, And and joining the Nation of Islam, but his his mother remaining a good, solid Baptist. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, someone who was off the chain in in many different ways, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, uh, who was a, a Minister of Information for the Black Panther Party um, all over the place in his kind of religious points of views. So the, to, to look at that. And then this fourth book was like, okay, I want to write these letters and tell a history that maybe some young people will engage in that wouldn't come at it like straight ahead on a, writing a, a history mm-hmm. um, um, uh, monograph. Um, so I tried to approach it all kinds of ways. Yeah. But I also wanted to really think about uh, all through the press is this angst about democracy. And I really wanted to think about uh, what that meant. I think that there was lots to be learned uh, from uh, uh, black people's lives. Um, that's why black people matter, um, because their lives. Um, have something to teach all of us because we're all human, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it's important, was important for me to figure out ways of telling, using multimedia, Mm -hmm. Uh, people just don't read anymore. And it's also kind of multimedia. So, okay, I'm going to write 12 meditations in a kind of meditative form for people to engage in anytime they want. One, two, three, four. you know, and, um, you know, I, I want to engage uh, them in a process of self-reflection. And that's what the best teaching is. It's not me telling you what to think, right. but you thinking for yourself and coming to terms with, um, so sometimes students ask me questions and I say, you know what, you need to go to the library, pick a book <laughs> and come back and tell us, right? you know, because that's really important for us to do. Well, I'll just share with you that the
0: one thing that, and it's related to Dr. King is that um, I, I, my impression of the civil rights movement was what it would be for a normal kid in Grand Rapids. I went on the northeast side, um, Northview High School, mm-hmm. very little minorities right. there. Right. Just kind of went through, uh, through school, knew whatever they taught us in history class, and had a particular view of the world as I launched out. That was sort of like from the soil and oh, the earth of Grand Rapids, right? So, fast forward, I'm in my mid 30s, uh, probably. I don't know exactly, probably around there, mid 30s. I went to or late 30s. I went to uh, I went to Memphis. I was there. I had a day to kill, and I, went, oh, I was in Memphis. I was like, I want to see Graceland, right? So I went to Graceland, saw Elvis. You know. Saw his car,
1: saw his jets, all that stuff. You wanted to go to the town where two kings died. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I went only to, to really, I was like, oh, I've always wanted to go to Graceland. Well, because of photography and because of Dr. King and, and um, Jesse Jackson, everyone pointing up to the shooter right. on the balcony of the Lorraine right. Hotel, I want to see that. Right. So I went there. And then I... Still, like, the Cadillacs are there, the wreaths on the balcony, and the whole facade is still there. And I thought that would be it. Like, I sort of was, like, I was sort of just rubbernecking in civil rights history, and it was, if you go past Graceland, it's out, you know, by there. So, anyway, I, I decided to buy a ticket and go into the Civil Rights Museum. I'm by myself. I could have just left. I could have just gone to the barbecue joint that's right on the corner. You know, there's one right by there. Anyway, I went through the whole thing, and I don't know, probably about after about 20 minutes there, I was like, how did this movement happen peacefully? They had every intention, the establishment, every intention, every motivation, everything to not give the civil rights movement not one ounce of what they wanted, and how that happened transitioned peacefully through marching, through freedom riders, through all that stuff. It changed my life and perception about what the civil rights movement really was, who Dr. King was, and how the hell any of it ever got passed. I couldn't believe it when you took up the, all the the white momentum and the just two, three hundred years at that point of the legacy of. Just putting people like that to work in enslavement, in, in <laughs> basically, or, or, or systematic imprisonment at that point. So it, it can happen when you go, it, when you aren't told what to think necessarily. Right. No one sent me there. I right. wouldn't go there as a junior hire to go learn about right. it and then have a professor Tell me exactly what I should think about Dr. King and the movie. It happened organically. Right. And I don't know how to recreate that for other people. But the outcome that I took, and I, I mean, I really, and I brought my daughters there when they were old enough. I said, uh, I, I'll do two things. I and mean, we flew to Memphis, we did the thing, we flew later to DC. It was my little trip for my older girls. Yeah. And I was like, you're going to go see, mm. we're going to spend more time at the Civil Rights Museum than we are at Graceland, although we took them to Graceland too. But this, the point was that that really just set it in motion, a museum, which I'm not even an academic in that. Like, I don't love museums necessarily. But something photo, cracked my... The, yeah, photo, the photo opened photo. the door, right. and it cracked something else open inside of me to really see some things with empathy in a way and trying to understand how. what a money... I finally began to be able to... Um, uh, it was palpable to me what the struggle was. I didn't experience the struggle. I've never struggled like that, never will probably in my life, just given that I'm a, a white middle-aged man. But the point is is that uh, it then set in motion my interest a little more in politics and policy and structural and infrastructure, uh, uh, you know, uh, institutional racism. And how did we get here in the first place? And how is the the first ward funded, a thousand times more than the third ward? Well, it's not
1: an accident. So anyway, that's a little bit of insight into that. I want to stop you there because your description of going into the and the people at at the National Civil Rights Museum would love your description. Your description of going in there is precisely what I wanted to see. That what I want people to see in my book. The precise thing is that you have to internalize being democratic. It's not just the processes. It's not just the laws. You have to... Pro- and my argument, essentially, is that African-Americans in their own institutions had internalized democracy and they, it, they understood what it meant and for uh, their lives... And how they could organize is because they had created networks, democratic networks. They fought in their churches. They argued against each other and elsewhere. My grandmother had a seventh grade education, my maternal grandmother lived with. And she knew Robert's rules of order like nobody's business. The process of democracy was in my house. Mm-hmm. I, I watched my grandmother lead a meeting and I'm like, man, you know, she's got some great education. she lead these meetings of these women and uh, nope, nope, this is the process. This is real, So everybody can speak. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I wanted people to understand. Mm-hmm. That, that, that we have to continue to cultivate that sense. The very thing you saw, that sense is really important to all of us. Mm-hmm. As Americans, and that's what I really wanted people to see. And I use King because, as a giant, you could use other people, um, uh, other people who are, you know, equally. As he would say, I'm just a part of a movement. I'm not the movement. Right. He never claimed that, but I'm a part of that movement. That, and that's why you can say uh, Ella Baker or Stokely Carmichael or, uh, or Kwame Ture. And a host of other little people who were a part of a movement um, and uh, very democratic in many ways, I mean you know people criticize King and they had a right to at times and and you know um, because that's what leaders have to be held accountable sure and so i i I think that and and there's a even as the civil rights movement going, there's an ongoing debate mm-hmm. among black people about, well, is this the proper way to go? Sure. Yeah. And, and that's, that's democracy. Right. To me, that's democracy that we can, we can continue to debate. Um, and that was the real tragedy of his assassination. Because what you're saying is, okay, we're going to stop debate, we're going to just shoot people. And that's, um, you know, that's, you know, that's a... And thing. I think that was the finality of the impact
0: of being, that. that's so appropriate that the museum is there. Yeah. Because they gunned, they gunned him down, or that person gunned him down as a, as a symbol. He killed a symbol of something that had momentum right. and justice and right. amazing, amazing things. And, um... I think that's that's also what happened and it continued that just started that was my my first experience to an exploration of like okay my eyes are more open now I I need to learn more and I'm still I'm, I'm still learning and I, I don't mean to suggest that like I had some aha moment and no, clarity. No, I, I still no. have all that but it, it then I got more interested in Baldwin and right. writing Baldwin I think right. it's it, in some yeah, way more on the back
1: in uh, my t-shirt uh, yeah even <laughs> like
0: the uh You know, in some ways, I mean, so his intellectual pursuit as opposed to King's approach, which wasn't as intellectual as, but just as an orator and the fact that he was this gay man and a a black man and this acclaimed author, like the accomplishments in his life are amazing. And then when you mentioned Ali too, like I watched a couple of those documentaries about his Supreme Court case. Like, he went to the Supreme Court and won. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, again, all motivations right. to just keep this man down. Right. I, I don't know. It, they're amazing. Uh, and that's what I wanted yeah.
1: people to uh, find out. And I want to bring it back to Grand Rapids. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, people in Grand Rapids are generally overall well-meaning. Um, I don't... Um, but well-meaning is not always asking the pertinent question. In um, in a town like this one, people like to use be seen be seen as charitable, mm-hmm. and charity uh, is not justice. Right. And that's the, where the rub is.
0: Yeah. I mean, people. Uh, that's really articulated well because that that we have more nonprofits and we think. We have a uh, here, just as an umbrella sort of philosophy for a lot of people and a lot of businesses and foundations, is that um, we, this charitable philanthropic generosity is supposed to cure problems, but we haven't addressed what created the problems.
1: In sure. The first so, place. so, for example, nobody ever thinks about who were the people living at where 131 meets downtown in the S-curve. Well, that was the black community, right, at yeah. one time. Yeah. nobody. There were a whole bunch of businesses that my and pa stores, that's how you start. Nobody ever gave people enough dollars to restart their business, because you know when you're a my and pa business, you're on a shoestring in the first place. Right. Um, Uh, Meaning when they brought the
0: 131 through Grand Rapids, they displaced and 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 tore down a bunch of buildings. And it
1: displaced. uh, If you look at (laughs) one, you know, 196. They didn't put it through Heritage Hill. Right. Right. You (laughs) look at 196. And of course, they could have done like German cities did a loop around. Right. Mm -hmm. But business community said, oh, we need the, the we'll lose business if the traffic doesn't come straight through downtown. Turns out you're gonna, you lose business because you lost all of the foot traffic.
0: Yeah.
1: And that you are. You don't you have had, to stop. That's right. You're going 70 miles an hour through <laughs> there. Right. You're not going to <laughs> get up and go downtown. <laughs> right. You're not going to go, oh, I need a, uh, I need a, a beverage. But see, um, without a uh, debate, and if there's only one side of that question yeah. is, will that solve the issue we, you know, that we're trying to uh, address? Now, everybody wants to move back in the city. And now everybody's saying, well, why don't we have public transportation really going through the city? Well, at one time we did. But GM said, "Uh, everybody should be in cars. Yeah. GM could have right. equally made trolleys as they made cars.
0: True. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many things. And now we complain that there's, uh, you know, the, uh, and it's, it's a legit complaint. I don't mean like we're bitching about it but in the sense of like, uh, but with this influx. Downtown we have uh, housing costs going out out the roof with real estate apartment rentals, all the stuff land development acquisition all the stuff that it takes to uh, make a buck is harder and we uh, you know we're not going to have the people living downtown that want to live downtown yeah. and should be living mm-hmm. amongst each other and with each other right and uh, as opposed to scurrying off in your car to your um, suburban um,
1: District. Well, yeah. I mean, those are, those are all changing now. The city will become much more for, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the, the upper middle class.
0: Yeah. What can we cover? I, I want to be. Uh, oh no! I, yeah, I respectful think, of your I, I time. Think, I think. Um,
1: I, I think. Look, uh, what? Um, um, one. For, thank you. Oh, uh, thank you. My grandparents would say, you know. I always say, thank you and please takes you where money and power don't. <laughs> <laughs> that was a mantra in the house. Really? Thank you and please. Thank you where money and power won't. <laughs> hmm.
0: What is that? So help me articulate. I mean, I understand the the basic notion of it, but like, how is money well, and power related to thank you and please? Meaning that, uh, that, that... that Thank you
1: and please are just as powerful. Oh, got it. Yeah, got it. Perfect. Thank you and please are just as powerful. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, we, you know well, I'm always grateful in any conversation people want to... Have with me around these uh, topics, yeah. in, in a in a in a conversation like way, um, you know. Um, well, one yeah, last yeah. question: What is your uh, if you
0: had a um, if you had to sort of identify you know one of your true heroes, whether it's in the areas of interest that you write about, or if it's just you personally. As a beacon, as a mentor,
1: uh, just sort of break down who oh, that was. Well, would be, you know, I mean, part, docu- of, part of it is as a kid, um, in '68, when King was assassinated, I was uh, 12 years old. And immediately I kept it, I still have in my lock wrapped up the paper from that day. And immediately I began reading more and more and understanding more and more about. Uh, uh, of course, Baldwin, mm-hmm. who you mentioned, um, and, and um, uh, Tony Morrison, um, and um, uh, I had a teacher at Michigan. We read *The Bluest Eyes* and other other kinds of of, of books, and I liked her prose. Um, uh, going to seminary, you you, uh, you have to be somewhat of a pro pro. Uh, you know, uh, kind of poetry, prose, you, you're speaking, mm. you're talking to people, sure. um, you're writing. Uh, and so I was trying to, uh, to be, uh, uh, to study all these uh, great, great people. And at the time I went to the, the University of Michigan, um, my English professor uh, for a course on African-American literature was a woman named Gail Jones. And she had this editor at Random House named Tony Morrison. No, no way. <laughs> it was our editor. Wow. And there was other a poetry professor, Robert Hayden, who's a Detroiter, famous poet. Now you see him in every poet anthology. And I, you know, I was lucky to have some great professors uh, at Michigan at the time I went. Mm-hmm. Um, they were public. They were not just uh, kind of the kind of, you know, academic professionals. They were... They, they were seen in the larger world, um, <laughs> and those were the people i I kind of role modeled my 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 life on yeah i 'm um, working on a film
0: yeah, I was just going to ask you about that because I just was reminded yeah. that you 're working aren 't you actually working on two projects yeah, with yeah, film yeah. i mean you have uh, the documentary that 's kind of um Going, but then we had Governor Slugwell uh, in as well. Yeah, uh, you're you're helping. Yeah, I'm uh, yeah, part some of h- the
1: kind of Grand Rapids project. Yeah, right, which right. I
0: think will be really fascinating. Yeah.
1: But tell us about the other documentary, because that well, the other the, documentary you have is, a is well-known is, director. We yeah. Well, the other documentary is 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 uh, I don't ever think of him as a well-known. When you have a friend, you just think yeah, sure. he's your friend. Oh well, no, he's <laughs> right. He won Academy Award, Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Wilmot, with uh, uh, in conjunction with Spike Lee. Uh, for Black Klansmen, and Kevin worked with, began working with Spike on the film Chirac, and then they did five, the Five Bloods that mm-hmm. appeared on uh, uh, Netflix, which had Bozeman, the one of his last. Uh, yeah, films, his last one, so. Yeah, one of. them. Yeah. And so Kevin, Kevin, uh, when I came to Kansas, he was. Uh, a faculty member, he had been making independent films. He had gotten some, a, a sizable uh, recognition for a film. Um, um, he, he made kind of mockumentary of, of, of Ken Burns. <laughs> uh, and so I wanted to meet him. And I said, okay, I'm joining the faculty of Kansas. And so we, uh, I called him up, we talk, and, and we have a visit and so forth. And he calls me, he's an independent filmmaker, he calls me about a week later saying, look, I need a talking head for my, my documentary I'm making about Kansas City's <laughs> hospital. Can you do this? <laughs> and we have been friends <laughs> ever, ever since. And you know, we had this running joke. I said, okay, look, you're working with Spike, you know, in this, in this film, Black Klansman, if you, you get nominated for an Academy Award, man, you know, I'm coming. Right. And I'm yeah. gonna show up. You just give me a ticket, and, <laughs> and of course he did, and, yeah, and, yeah. and 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 the rest is history. But I began working on this film about Langston Hughes, mm-hmm. and Langston Hughes was, again, teachers. You know, um, introduced the poet uh, Langston Hughes uh, was introduced to me in the seventh grade, and um, when I was in college, I, I, I wrote a bad paper on Langston. Not a bad paper. It wasn't a great paper. Yeah, you know, a typical undergraduate uh, sure. fodder. But I was thinking about him, and when I went to Lawrence, that's where he spent his childhood, a good portion of his childhood. And it was it reminded me a lot of my own life. You know, I'd, you know, he leaves Lawrence at 14 years old. It goes to Illinois for a year, um, little town in Illinois, and then off to Cleveland where he goes to high school. Mm-hmm. And so used his own, own. Um, uh, biographical journey in some ways reminded me of aspects of my life. Sure. And I, and I loved him as a, uh, uh, his stories, his writing, um, and he was in everything. He even wrote a film that got made in Hollywood, butchered it, and he never talked about it again. <laughs> um, but so, and uh, so we started pitching this film, we went to the National Endowment for the humanities, and we we lucked up and got a development grant, and we thought this was going to be easy. <laughs> and then we went back for the kind of big dollars, and we kept getting turned down, so we said, okay, you know what, we need to join up with folks out uh, in Hollywood and start pitching this to streaming services. And when Kevin won the Academy Award, well, of course, he became, so
0: Doors opened a little the bit. The doors opened yeah. up a little bit, so yeah. we've
1: been... Uh, this in pandemic spring pitching to uh, all the streaming some major streaming platforms we have one more pitch in um, in a week and a half or so um, and then we 're waiting to hear for some um, you know Hughes was it's a, a, a man of the people right you know, um, you know he was a, a writer thought about you know, class and other things, and uh, he was always someone who kept his own personal life to himself. Mm -hmm. I uh, um, I think it's fair enough to say he was gay or queer today, as we might say, Mm -hmm. but that was always something private. Unlike Baldwin, you know, like 20 years apart, unlike Baldwin, who was going to be openly like, you know, Mm -hmm. this is what it is, you know. I don't care if it's the 1950s, 60s, you know, Langston was a very uh, different kind of uh, person—a a real Midwesterner in many ways, about sensibilities, person, sure. yeah. and so. Well, it was but, not a time to live your full self, right? And yeah. also, but I did, but artistically he did. Yeah, I mean, so what do you say? Somebody wrote, a, wrote poetry, um, children's books, librettos, worked with Kurt Vile. He loved photography. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Henri Rissol. He, Henri Brisson, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, pictures yeah. of youth. Yeah. He yeah. loved photography. Gordon Parks. Yes. Yeah. You could just Parks go to. You could go down the yeah. list of photographers. Use work. He, he's kind of like Frederick Douglass. Frederick, Frederick Douglass loved photography. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great book on Douglass and photography. And he, he, all the photographs he took. Frederick Douglass took Frederick, in the 19th century, yeah. yeah. Hughes is also Yeah, because, uh, I mean, he has
0: an iconic portrait that everybody uses. Right. But, the, but, but I didn't he know he was an active
1: photographer. No, he wasn't an active photographer. Well, he loved being photographed. Oh, he okay. thought that, yes. that that new technology sure. would show humanity of people. Yeah. the way you used it. So he became the subject of it. And so, so and Hughes loved. How much would you give to hear a recording of Frederick Douglass giving oh. a speech? Like, I, mean, I think there maybe one or two but you know they're not great but oh you, are yeah. there okay yeah. I thought
0: it was before re- recording yeah. before he passed I think
1: when he he died in 1892 94 so I think he's there are a couple yeah. of them Okay He was a wonderful
0: storyteller Well and that, I think yeah and that's what also I just you know he's such a gifted orator right. that you know uh that's why he was so so powerful and and actually so um, you know, and, uh, all scalable, but accepted and renowned right, is right. because how well he could communicate right. his intellect and his oh, ideas. That, that's and, right. and you don't do that unless you have a, a magnetic personality right. in some ways as a speaker. So okay. so,
1: so, Hughes is the, one of those people and I wanted to bring to life because I think because of his class sensibility, he was very criticized as a young poet because people thought he was um, too much talking about people on the street and all those. So I wanted to bring that back to the hip hop generation. Like, y'all ain't the first one to <laughs> yeah, it right, real, right? right? Yeah, right, right. And, yeah. and, and, um, and also just uh, attempting to, and he had this wry sense of humor and I wanted to, Make sure that another generation knows about them. You know, film and podcasts and other things help people go back and look at other uh, other people anew. Yeah, um, and I wanted uh, used to be known. And the other thing is, like Walt Whitman uh, and similar, maybe better. Use is a poet of again that everybody has a voice. He's the democratic poet of it, so to speak. You know? mm-hmm. um, and he gets, when people are frustrated, you know, his poem, Harlem, you know, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, um, and, you know, I, and he traveled all over the world. That's, that's That's the thing that got me as a college student. Really, I wanted to, why I did those travels, like in the back of my head, Hughes went around the world. He went, he went, he was in in, in, in Central Asia, and I should be doing these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So Hughes was a big influence on, on me. Reading his uh, memoir, *The Big Sea*. He, he you know, he quits college. He starts off at Columbia University. He absolutely hates it. Drops out. You know, he's always fighting with his his father. Uh, he's kind of. Um, um, and he, he 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 hops aboard a ship that's going nowhere, and and he works that, and then he finally gets on the ship that he's traveling, and he goes to uh, he goes to the African continent, and he goes to um, back. He he gets off as a youngster with like like I think he said fifty bucks or thirty bucks in his pocket, and he takes the from Rotterdam to Paris, and he winds up staying in Paris. And I was like, "That's the life right?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, um, of course, he finally he makes his way back to the, the United States. Um, and, and, uh, and then he goes to uh, on this failed movie attempt at, that we were going to make in the Soviet Union uh, in the 1930s. And, but he winds up staying and goes to Central Asia, then he goes to, uh, to Japan and China. And he sees the world, and he sees the ordinary people in the world, and that was like, that was like, okay, that's that's the kind of life I, right. most people really want to live. Maybe yeah. we'll never live it, but he inspired me, uh, in the sense to 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 uh, be a, a kind of world traveler, yeah, and and hang out with people and. Well,
0: I think on. you know, America is so big. I think some of the geographically big, and so many people, but our geography really uh slows uh how many well our we're so large that i think if you can travel internationally as a young person especially oh, and broaden your horizons and know that the world life. yeah it changes everything and it and that knowing that uh you know <clears throat> this kind of uh, i love america but like the, this exceptionalism we're fed all the
1: time is well, uh, we may need to correct the maps a little bit. You know, Brazil, the, Brazil is as large as the United States landmass, right? And you can put the United States in the African continent and yeah. still have left. Yeah, I didn't mean it was the biggest. <laughs> no, I'm just no. saying that geographically. Yeah, I, I it's know, a but Americans yeah, often sure. think that. Oh, then we, we're so big. Yes, we're yeah. so big. I'm like, well, you know, you <laughs> know, Brazil is continuously. Sure. It's the same size as uh, the yeah. United States, of 48. Sure. And so we. We often think of ourselves as uh, uh, isolated, you know. I'm like, well, yeah. you know, we're not. You know, Asia is still the biggest continent in the world. <laughs> we really are. You yeah. know, with all the variety of people on that continent, for sure. <laughs> for
0: sure. Well, uh, my point is, if you're not being intentional about anything, whether it's to, uh, you know, to go and experience another culture, yeah. uh, another language, another right. other, like go be a go be a foreigner, go yeah. be a stranger right. in another country. Uh, that
1: informs all kind. Of, that can be a springboard oh, and just that, a baseline too. In, in 2015, you know, I I took a, I did a Fulbright in the Czech Republic. Nice. And when I was at Calvin, I was lucky enough uh, to, fortunate enough to start the, their semester program in Ghana. So I spent a lot of time in, yeah. in Ghana. Um, and all those experiences, right, that whether I was in Ghana, whether I am in Czech Republic, or teaching at the University of Regensburg in Germany, all of those experiences that you you find that when you're at dinner with people, like it's the same everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. It's the same. Very everywhere. true. Families got the same issues everywhere.
0: Well, there we go. Another uh, fun conversation with Dr. Dr. Jelks. I really appreciate him sharing his thoughts about his new book, Letters to Barton. I put uh, links in the show notes. You can go off and purchase that at Amazon and many other places. And um, uh, you can also just go to Full uh, fullexposurepodcast.com, Dr. Jelks, and uh, view the video excerpts of our conversation as well as uh, the portraits I made of Dr. Jelks. And... Um, That's it. So, uh, reach out to me if you have any comments about this particular episode, uh, please do so. Love giving feedback from you guys. And, uh, let's, uh, let's just go out and have a great week, everybody. Okay. Go get it. The full exposure podcast is brought to you by Dr. Peter Hahn and university of Michigan health West in appreciation of the creative and artistic visionaries who enrich our lives through cultural connections.